morning. Welcome to Redemption Church, everyone. Uh, my name is Reggie. I'm one of the um, pastors here at Redemption. And over the last year or so here at Redemption, we have been moving through the minor prophets. And so last Sunday, we started in uh, the book of Zephaniah. Uh, ben preached Zephaniah chapter 1. This morning, we're looking at Zephaniah chapter 1 and a little bit from Zephaniah chapter um, 3. So I'm sorry, Zephaniah chapter 2. And the first part of Zephaniah chapter 3 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, in just a second, I'll read through that. Just so you know what's going on in Zephaniah chapter 2, at the beginning, there's a call to God's people to do something. And the second part of Zephaniah chapter 2, um, there is just an announcement of judgment by God on the nations surrounding Israel. And then in chapter 3, there's a specific proclamation of judgment on God's people in Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, so that's what I'll be reading, Zephaniah chapter 2 through 3, verse 8. There's a lot of verses here, um, but I do want to make sure that we read God's word as this is what we're moving through this morning. So uh, if you want to follow along, uh, the words will be on the screen, I think, or you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone. This is God's word from Zephaniah. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, of which they shall graze. And in the house of Ascalon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them. And restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, the land of the nations. You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. And all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. 
She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, from the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. We look at those words, they're not words that garner great hope. Um, they're pretty harsh. They're words of judgment and words of desolation. But this is God's word to Zephaniah, and there's a purpose and a point behind it. And, uh, and that's what we'll talk about this morning. But before I start that, let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be together this morning, God. Thank you for your word, that even when it's difficult, even when we don't like to hear these things, even when it's difficult to understand and to grasp, God, I pray that you would make the hope that resides in Zephaniah clear to us, that you would allow us to see what is good and glorious even in this passage. God, I pray this morning that you would use me as an instrument of your gospel, an instrument of your grace and mercy, that your words would be proclaimed. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that we would hear your words, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that Christ would be lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you. Holy Father, we ask this in the name of the Son, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress or not. You may have read it in high school or college or somewhere along the way. Uh, but if you don't mind, I'd like to read just a little bit from Pilgrim's Progress to you as we get started. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came upon a certain place. And I lay down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. Behold, I saw a man turned away from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. Not being able to contain himself any longer, he broke out with a lamentable cry, What shall I do? Therefore, in this plight, he went home. Oh, my dear wife, he said, and you, the children of my deepest affections, I, your dear friend, and myself undone. By reason of a burden that weighs heavily upon me, moreover, I am certainly informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven. Both myself with you, my wife, and sweet babes shall come to a miserable ruin, except some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. Because they thought that some frenzy 
distemper had got into his head. Consequently, with the night approaching and with the hope that sleep might settle his brains, they got him to bed with all haste. However, instead of sleeping, he spent that evening in sighs and tears. And after he awoke, they contrived to drive away his demented frame of mind by means of surly carriages toward him. Sometimes they would deride, sometimes they would chide, and at other times they would quite neglect him. Therefore, he began to retire to his bedroom to pray for and pity them and also lament over his misery. He would walk alone in the nearby field, sometimes reading and sometimes praying. And so for some days, he spent his time in this manner. Now, I noticed on a particular occasion when he was walking in the fields that he was reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before crying, what shall I do to be saved. I also saw that he looked this way and that way as if he would run, yet he stood still because he could not tell which way to go. I then looked and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him who asked, for what reason are you crying? And he answered, sir, I understand by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. And then said Evangelist, why are you not willing to die since this life is accompanied with so many evils? And the man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into a place of burning. Then said Evangelist, if this is your condition, then why are you standing still? And he answered, because I do not know which way to go. Then Evangelist gave him a parchment scroll on which was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. Therefore the man read the scroll and looking upon Evangelist very carefully said, Which way must I go to escape? And then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger beyond a very large field, Do you see a small gate over there? And the man replied, No. And then he was asked, Do you see a shining light not so quite far away? And he said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light before your eye and go directly toward it. And then you shall see the gate at which when you knock, you will be told what you are to do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. I think that maybe we live under a false sense of security. That false sense of security had been robbed from Christian in the beginning of the book Pilgrim's Progress. But I think probably part of the reason for why we live under a false sense of security is that idolatry tends to do that to us, to give us a false sense of security. Unless we think that we are immune to idolatry, lest we think that idolatry is not a problem for you and I in this day and age, just as it was for God's people in the book of Zephaniah, I would encourage you to evaluate the idea of idolatry by looking at all of Scripture, to take all of Scripture into account when evaluating what idolatry really is. Because the Bible has a lot to say about it. The Bible has as much to say about idolatry as anything else. One of the things that I think is clear throughout Scripture is that we as people are inevitably religious. We are bound to one God 
or to another. Many years ago, David Pallison wrote an article entitled Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair there is a reference directly to Pilgrim's Progress and Christian's Journey. And in that article, he says this, People do not have needs. People have masters. And essentially, he makes the argument that what we often call needs or desires really end up being our masters and our lords, our functional saviors. He essentially makes the argument that what we call as desires of the heart are really idols, right? For instance, we all have the need to eat. And as believers, our relationship to food should be that we view food as a gift from God that is intended to nourish our bodies and that we're to be thankful for God's provision. But in all actuality, our relationship to food often looks something different than that. We eat our feelings. We drink our feelings. Or maybe we severely limit what we eat to introduce some sort of feeling of control into our life. And so that food becomes something more than what God intended or maybe something less than what God intended. But in the end, we end up serving the need to eat. And it's not as God intended it to be. Or what about money? As believers, our relationship to money is to see it as a gift from God that allows us to be cared for, to have our needs met. But how do we actually look at money? Are we, are we looking at it as a means to be generous to those around us as God has provided for us? Or do we see it as something to hoard in order to create a safety net? That if things around me go crazy, I can always fall back on my money. I'm not talking about proper stewardship here, but I am talking about an attitude of trust in what we possess and what we own that we see as a way to be okay. Maybe we look at money as something else entirely, uh, as a way to get stuff and to buy experiences. It becomes a means to an end, but it doesn't become what God intended it to be. We love our idols. We trust our idols. We obey our idols because we all want to be safe. And I could go on and on and talk about all sorts of idols that we look to in order to make us feel safe and in control and valued and love. Money and power and sex and food and experiences and affluence and popularity and political ideology and things and guns and so forth and so forth. We serve those things in ways we don't even realize in order to gain some sense of safety, some sense of security, and some sense of control. But in fact, the reality of our situation is quite opposite of that. Serving those things puts us in incredible danger. Because of our sin and idolatry, the reality of our situation is that we are not safe. In the portion of Pilgrim's Progress that I just read, Christian is uniquely aware of God's judgment, of the fact that he and his family and those around him are not safe, that there doesn't seem to be any hope of safety and security, and he doesn't know where to run to get to that point of safety and security. He eventually gets pointed to that light in the distance, but it doesn't start off that way. Zephaniah feels very much like this when we read through the book of Zephaniah, even what I read a second ago, like there's no hope of safety. We eventually get there at the end of chapter 3. The end of chapter 3 is incredible. 
but it doesn't feel that way at first. Because we heard this in chapter 1, God said, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. The last verse I read from chapter 3 a second ago, chapter 3, 8, God says, I am bringing my judgment on everything. Along the way, there are glimpses of this light, like in chapter 2, the first few verses there, where God where, where it's written, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. That's, that's a little bit of that light that Christians saw in the distance. We've gone from God saying, I will destroy everything, to God saying, maybe, maybe you'll be hidden if you repent. Chapter 3 is, like I said, entirely different. The end of chapter 3 is, is pretty incredible. But we're not to that part of Zephaniah yet. We're at what seems like a familiar place in the minor prophets as you move through the minor prophets. The place where God's people are facing judgment because of their idolatry and because of their injustice. Because the two go hand in hand. We're, we're back at that place again. In the minor prophets, the judgment is abundantly clear, like I said in that last verse from chapter 3, where God says, For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And here's part of what I think Zephaniah's message reveals to us and that Zephaniah intended for God's people in Jerusalem and Judah to hear is that idolatry of any kind truly is awful. I think Zephaniah wanted these people to see how unsafe and how grotesque idolatry is and where it leaves us in our sin. Do you remember, maybe from last week, if you were here from chapter 1, Ben read these verses and talked about them, but he said this in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. I want you to grasp just how grotesque this is because these verses don't necessarily give us the full context for what Zephaniah is talking about. God's people are attempting to worship God. That's part of what is there. But at the same time, they are attempting to worship these truly awful idols. They're calling themselves by God's name, and yet they are worshiping Baal or Baal, which is a Canaanite fertility idol that requires all sorts of sexuality, sexual immorality in order to be worshipped. They're offering sacrifices to God all while worshipping an Ammonite God that's referred to here as Milcom, more, more commonly known as Moloch in the Old Testament, uh, an idol, a false god that literally required the sacrifice of children in a fire. I mean, literally required the sacrifice of children in a fire in order to be appeased. In their attempt to cover all of their bases and to get all the benefits from all the different gods, they're continuing their religious worship, the God of Israel, while at the same time offering sacrifices of children 
and participating in incredible immorality. It's no wonder that God is indignant in chapter 2 and in chapter, the beginning of chapter 3. It's, it's not that they are just worshiping idols. They are poking God with a stick by calling themselves by his name and doing some truly awful, horrible things. You know, Zephaniah clearly illustrates idolatry of any kind makes us grotesque before God and before one another. And that's the thing that maybe we need to grasp here, is that idolatry like what's described in Zephaniah is certainly not what we're going to do. We're not going to participate in fertility worship. We're not going to sacrifice children in a fire. But we might structure our lives around things that we think will provide us security, but never will. Idols dehumanize us, and they demand that we dehumanize people around us. Idol worship while claiming the name of God is uniquely grotesque, and it rightly makes God indignant. The message of Zephaniah should wake us up to the reality that God's judgment is bent toward those who claim him and are yet idolatrous. The message of Zephaniah is that there is nowhere to run from that judgment. What's so striking about Zephaniah chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is that God is talking about pouring out his wrath on Jerusalem and Judah right along with all of the nations around Israel that had led them into this type of idolatrous worship. God lumps his people in with the surrounding unjust and evil and idolatrous nations because they no longer look like his people. They just look wicked and evil and grotesque. And the reality becomes for God's people in this book that there is nowhere they can run from God's judgment. You see, chapter 2, verses 4 through 15 God isn't just listing a bunch of nations that will be judged because they're evil. He's literally drawing a circle around Israel when he lists these nations. He's saying if you flee to the west, you're going to find the wrath of God falling on the Philistines. If you flee to the east, you're going to find the wrath of God falling on Moab and Ammon. If you flee to the south, The Cushites are being slain by the sword. If you flee to the north, Assyria is destroyed in its great city. Nineveh is a desolation. God is painting a picture here in chapter 2 through Zephaniah saying there is no way you can go. There's nowhere you can go. There's no place to go to escape the judgment of God. Everywhere you run, God's judgment will be there. On the day of the Lord, Zephaniah talks about in chapter 1, God's judgment will be there wherever you go. But the beauty of the doctrine of judgment as it's laid out in Zephaniah is that there is no place we can run to, but there is a person we can run to. The glory of the gospel is that the one whose judgment we are trying to flee is the very one who takes the judgment intended for us and bears it upon a cross. 
The hope presented here in Zephaniah is that while there is nowhere to run, there is a person that God's people can run to. A person that can hide God's people from God's own judgment. That's the light that Christians saw in the distance in Pilgrim's Progress. That's the hope in Zephaniah. That's the hope in the midst of this judgment. That's the light in Zephaniah. That there's a place to go, a person to go to, to be spared from judgment. Right? Because true security is found in our doing what seems the most vulnerable. True safety and security is found in trusting the God who could crush us under the weight of his judgment. True security is found not in the worship of idols created in our own image. Idols that we think will keep us safe. True security is only found in running to our Savior. If we run to Him and worship Him, we will find greater security than we ever thought we were finding elsewhere. Even more than we realize, we are like the people of Zephaniah, or like the people of Jerusalem that Zephaniah is speaking to, when we trust the idols and the desires of our heart instead of God. Instead of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 2, the problem with the people in Jerusalem is stated very simply. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. The essence of the sin that Zephaniah is speaking against there is self-sufficiency. They won't listen to anybody They won't accept correction from anybody. They're not running to God as their place of refuge. They don't need God. They don't trust Him. They don't go to Him. They look for their safety and security in other places. There is in every human, I think, a deep longing to worship something great. I believe that that's what we were created for, to worship God, the creator of everything. To worship the greatest one ever. But there is also in every human the sinful longing for self-determination and autonomy. Ben referenced it last week. We will do our own thing to get our own glory. Because man does not cease to be a worshiping creature when he rejects God. Instead, he searches for another thing to worship and what often ends up happening is that we create a God in our own image who will give us everything we desire and so thus we worship our desires and our wants the most arrogant person on the face of the earth is the one bowing humbly before the God he or she has created in their own image in Zephaniah the day of the Lord is coming upon Judah because of their refusal to take refuge in the only place where security can be found. But there is hope here in the book of Zephaniah that our idols can be defeated, that our self-sufficiency can be overcome, and that we can, try, and that we can find true peace and security. There is hope because there is a call here for us to take refuge in our Savior in Jesus. Zephaniah, the book where God has promised to wipe everything from the earth. And the book of Zephaniah, 
where God no longer even recognizes his own people as his own. There is hope. As one scholar put it, Zephaniah is pregnant with the gospel. The gospel has not been fully delivered, but it's here in utero. Look with me again at verses 2, I mean at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Notice the relentless repetition in each verse. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning of the anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, before that day, what does Zephaniah say to do in, cha- in verse 3? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Let's recognize what this is. This is a call from Zephaniah to repentance. It's a call for the people in Jerusalem and Judah. It's a call for you and I. It's a call to turn from idolatry and to replace our love and trust for our idols with a love and trust for the one that offers refuge. It's a call to run to our Savior for security. To run to the only place that you can truly be safe. Within the last couple of weeks, I had to go see uh, my dermatologist. It's not something I do often, uh, but I'm pretty fair-skinned, and the threat of skin cancer is always present. So while I was there, uh, the the doctor actually diagnosed me with another condition uh, that I was not aware I had and had never even thought about. I was diagnosed with rosacea, which is a condition for me that leads to my face being really red all the time. So it looks like I'm angry or sunburnt constantly. In reality, most of the time I am angry, but that's just the way I am. For some people, the effects of rosacea are far worse. For me, it's not so much. I'm just going to look sunburnt. Um, So I started reading about rosacea while I was at the doctor's office and afterwards. Right, And there's no real guaranteed treatment or cure that will make this skin condition go away permanently. There are ways to deal with it, but not to cure it. And so some of the suggestions for dealing with the redness, even for me, was the use of cosmetics to cover the redness with a more natural color by using makeup. And I think a lot of people would get a kick out of that. My daughter's laughing back there already. I think a lot of people would get a kick out of that. But it's probably just not something I'm going to do. I'm just going to look red and angry. Um, Unless it gets really bad. (laughs) And then who knows? You know, I don't know. But what I want us to recognize is that even in that, one of the medical recommendations for how to deal with this was to cover it up. And in reality, that's probably how most of us want to deal with our idolatry and sin. We want to cover it up. To hide it, to try and ignore it, to not acknowledge it. But what God is asking in these verses is not for us to hide it. It's to acknowledge it. In verses 1 through 3 there of chapter 2, God is saying, don't hide it, acknowledge it. Before the 
the day of the, the anger of the Lord takes effect. Before that, seek the Lord, repent, turn from it, run to the Savior and say, yes, these are the things that I have been holding on to for safety and security. And instead, help me find safety and security in you Jesus, right? Instead of hiding it, the call here is to repent of it and to take refuge in God, to be hidden from God's judgment by God's own hand. Is that not the gospel? Right here in Zephaniah, is that not the gospel present? Run to God, acknowledge our idolatry, and instead seek the safety and security that can only be found in our God. What a glorious truth right here in the midst of judgment. It's the glory of the gospel that the one who would judge us is the one that would hide us. Right? What Zephaniah has for us is pretty simple. If we run to Jesus and worship him alone, we will find greater security than we thought we were finding elsewhere. If we don't, things get pretty rough. And so the call for us to be truly safe is a call to take refuge in Jesus. It's a call to be a refugee from our sin and idolatry and to seek safety in the only one who can truly provide the security and safety that we're all probably looking for one way or another. The call here is to run to Jesus. The call is to seek refuge in Jesus. The call is to stay with Jesus. Run to Jesus, seek refuge in Jesus, stay with Jesus. That's the call from the book of Zephaniah on our life this morning. Imagine how different our lives would look if we would run to Jesus instead of to our functional saviors. Imagine how different we would be. We're going to move into a time of response. Uh, it's something we do every Sunday here at Redemption to where um, as we close our service, we respond in a few different ways. The band will come back up and um, lead us in some more songs, give us an opportunity to worship by singing. We have an opportunity as well while that's happening to sit where you are or stand, whatever it may be, and to reflect and to pray to repent if that's necessary, but to deal with whatever God has laid upon our hearts and minds this morning. We have an opportunity to give. If you're a part of the redemption community, there's a giving basket in the back where you put your tithes and offerings or see other ways to give. And we have an opportunity to take communion as well. You can come down these side aisles here. Uh, there'll be people helping us to take communion, but you can tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The reason we come and we take communion every Sunday at Redemption is because in doing so, we're remembering the gospel, we're remembering what Christ has done, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it and that it's true. And so if you're here and a follower of Christ and want to come and to celebrate what Christ has done and proclaim that it's true and that you believe it, then I would invite you to do that. If that's not something you can uh, proclaim, then, then, then maybe you want to sit where you are. It's not meant to embarrass you, but just to say this is why we're doing this. And if you want to participate and remember what Christ has done and proclaim that you believe it, then I invite you to do that. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on.
God, thank you for this reminder from your word. God, that even in very difficult books like Zephaniah, there's still a promise of hope. There's still a promise of deliverance. There's still a promise of our great Savior, Jesus, who by his own hand provides a way for us to be rightly related to you. God, you are good, and we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for making a way for us to know you, that we would be your children, and that we would be hidden from your judgment by the work of Christ. God, I pray as we continue to respond that Christ would be lifted high, that you would be worshipped, that the Holy Spirit would be at work, and that we would be drawn to you. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.